Radio legend, controversial, outspoken. We're going to talk a number of topics with Bob Costas. Hello, Bob. How are you today? Hey, Kevin. How you doing? Uh, we're now joined by uh, Missouri State Representative from Springfield, Sarah Lambie. Coach Ken Carter. How you doing today, Coach? Well, we're not always honored, but we're honored today to have one of the great legends of sports and certainly one of the greatest basketball players that ever lived with us, and that is the great Jerry West. His book is West by West, My Charm, Tormented Life. Jerry, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Jay Paterno, the author of Paternal Legacy, Enduring Lessons from the Life and Death of My Father. It's fall and it's football, and I'm I'm assuming you're excited, but I'm also assuming there are mixed emotions. Uh, no, I'm excited. You know, obviously I'd like to be coaching, but, you know, those things will, that'll come with, you know, in time. Cardinal President Bill DeWitt III has joined us. Bill, how are you this afternoon? Hey, Kevin, how you doing? Well, we welcome one of my favorite people in all of sports, former Cardinal General Manager and shortstop, Dal Maxville to the show. Maxie, how are you? I am very good, Kevin. Real good, as a matter of fact. How about yourself? And we welcome the athletic director from the University of Oklahoma and the current sitting chairman of the men's basketball committee for the NCAA tournament, Joe Castiglione, our good friend. Joe, how are you today? Excellent, Kevin. And that bumper music got me fired up, and uh, and you're at Harpo's. <laughs> Holy cow. Blues owner Tom Stillman joins us. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us, and congratulations on that fantastic announcement. Thanks very much. We're really excited about it. We've wanted to get an outdoor game for quite a while, and, and uh, now we've got one. All right, we've got Norm uh, Norm Stewart, the, the Mizzou legend, is with us here. Coach, uh, thanks for joining us. It's always great to catch up with you. How are things today with you in Virginia? Oh, we're doing great, Kevin. Nice to talk to you. And John Sunvold, one of the greats in Mizzou basketball history, uh, was featured as part of the documentary. And John joins us now. Hi, John. How are you? Kevin, I'm doing great. Uh, how about yourself? And Tim Donahue, former NBA official, who uh, joins us now. He has written book, a book about his life in the NBA. Tim Donahue joins us now. Tim, how are you today? I'm doing terrific. Thanks for having me. We go to the uh, phone line with Dan Deardorff visiting with us, the Hall of Famer. And, of course, uh, just ending his career at CBS, but beginning his career as the one of the voices of Michigan football again. Hello, Dan. How are you? Hello, Kevin. How are you this afternoon? You hear that song? Of course, that's one of the songs from the soundtrack of the 2001 movie Remember the Titans. And one of the subjects, the main subject of that movie, was head coach Herman Boone from T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria. And Coach Boone joins us this afternoon. Hello, Coach Boone. How are you today? Hey, Kevin. How are you? Fine, thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Kevin Slayton, along with former Cincinnati Bengals guard Dave Lapham. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Kevin Slayton, alongside J.C. Pearson. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I 
Friday afternoon, St. Louis, and all points north, south, east, and west. We welcome you in. This is the Monster Energy Drink, stl-cars.com, Kings Court, on kevinslaytonshow.com. You can hear our live show right here every day from noon to 2, our sports show, and, of course, our podcast on our sports show under Monster Energy Drink will be on this website, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, Anchor, and every place else that you listen to podcasts. We welcome you in on this Friday. It's the end of the week. It's the day the Lord created, so we're thrilled. Monday, of course, the day the liberals created. We don't like Monday. But we put up with it because we have to. Our good friends at Monster Energy Drink are responsible for bringing you our sports show every day, along with stl-cars.com, and we're so thankful to them, among our other sponsors as well, Window World, Taco Bell. All of them, wonderful people, wonderful places to visit, wonderful products uh, to promote. And I promote products because I use them myself. If it's a product that I don't use and it's something I would use given the opportunity, that's something else that we'll talk about. But with Monster Energy Drink, it's simple. I woke up yesterday tired as could be. I grabbed myself a Monster Energy Drink before the show. I got that focus right away, the push that I needed, the boost, the punch of energy. And that's when you need Monster Energy Drink to bring the pursuit of victory to you. Bring out your best, put you at the top of your game. When you're ready to give it up and you can't go any further, grab that Monster Energy drink. It'll renew your energy, and that's why it's the most badass energy drink on the planet. Monster Energy. Unleash the beast, and that's what we do every day here at noon on KevinSlaytonShow.com. Our phone lines are always open for you, 636-348-4460. Novak Djokovic has advanced into the championship at Wimbledon. It would be his eighth Wimbledon title, his fifth in a row. Two things of significance there. Bjorn Borg won five in a row. He would tie him. The greatest of all, in my opinion, at least to this point, Roger Federer won eight Wimbledons in his career. That would tie Roger Federer. So Novak Djokovic on the verge of breaking every men's singles tennis record in history in every area grand slam events everything you know who he is he's the guy that joe biden wouldn't let in our country to play in the u.s open because he wouldn't get vaccinated unbelievable unconscionable while he lets illegal aliens in through the southern border unvaccinated unchecked untested amazing but we've moved beyond that way beyond that We're going to hear from Roger Federer today, now that he's in retirement, probably the classiest athlete, or at least tied for first, of any athlete I've ever witnessed in any sport, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, hockey, tennis, any sport, golf, and golf has their overabundance of classy people, but Roger Federer is the epitome of everything that's right about sports. He personifies class. Everything he does is smooth in his life. I mean, the guy was probably the smoothest tennis player. And like his idol from Sweden, Bjorn Borg, 
He was very, very methodical in the way he would destroy you. He was killing you, but it just didn't seem like it because he was so smooth as a player, but so deadly. Bud Collins once nicknamed Bjorn Borg the angelic assassin, and that could be apropos for Roger Federer too. You're going to hear what it's like to be a dad now that he's out of tennis, what his life is like if he misses it. Some funny anecdotes as to things that have happened since he's been out of tennis and about his retirement, uh, uh, I guess you would call it party, at a Rod Laver Memorial Tournament, and it was fantastic with all the greats that were there. We're also going to talk to you today about what John Gruden is doing that could almost destroy the NFL. Now, people didn't think much of it, I suppose, when John Gruden had to resign as head coach of the Raiders once emails were unearthed from his personal email account to Bruce Allen of the Redskins. When the NFL and Roger Goodell investigated Dan Snyder's business practices with the Redskins because they had some complaints about sexual harassment and the like, these emails were discovered and then leaked. Now, there were 650,000 emails total. Only John Gruden's emails from his personal email account were leaked. And they were very negative toward Goodell. Some of them had connotations that don't look good in print when it comes to race. Some of them don't look good in print when it comes to misogyny, but some of them were actually funny, and some of them were true and accurate pictures of Roger Goodell. And I don't I don't mean to say when I say funny, I just mean in terms of locker room humor. This is how athletes talk to each other. And if you've never been in a locker room, you don't understand it. It doesn't matter black or white. The knife is out. Pardon me, I had to sneeze. Guys are digging each other all the time. It's the way it is. It's the way a locker room is. It's the way guys are. You go out on a golf course with your friends, everybody's giving everybody else trouble. Hit a, hit a number of bad shots, and you'll hear about it from your friends. Trust me. But it's all meant in good fun. In Gruden's case, some of it was certainly personal. And as one person close to this lawsuit that Gruden has filed against the NFL says that Gruden's going to take it all the way, that it's well beyond personal. Gruden detests Roger Goodell. He hates him with a passion. He hates him with such a passion that it's hard to imagine you could hate someone as much as he hates Goodell. And with good reason, I might add. With good reason. Remember when Goodell and his league attorney Jeffrey Pash called Mark Davis, the owner of the Raiders, and pushed him, what are you going to do with Gruden? What are you going to do? They kept pushing him, pushing him, pushing him. Davis had no plans to fire John Gruden over the emails. So then Goodell sent him these a whole bunch of emails, and when Davis hung up the phone with Goodell, a person in the room said, Davis slammed the phone down and said, F the NFL, F Dan Snyder, the owner of the Redskins. Now, Rock Nation enters into this deal. Who's Rock Nation? That's Jay-Z's entertainment company. And the CEO of the entertainment company is, has been accused of leaking the documents. Now, how would that even come about? How does Rock Nation get involved? And that would be a logical question to ask, wouldn't it? Of course it would be. 
Well, Rock Nation got involved because the NFL, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable, hired Rock Nation, Jay-Z's company, to try to polish its image up. And they put them in charge of halftime shows for the future. $25 million deal, by the way. Desiree Perez is the CEO of Rock Nation. They were enlisted by the NFL to help with social issues. She claims that she did not in any way, shape, or form leak the emails, but kind of sounds like she had a motivation to because some of them were racially charged. $25 million deal Rock Nation got from the NFL to reshape the Super Bowl, the halftime show, that is, produce music. So that's why you have... Nothing but black music in the Super Bowl halftime shows, it seems, anymore. Because they've turned it over to Jay-Z. Himself a guy who has a checkered past. So that's how they're involved. I mean, it is a complicated, wild, and I mean wild, case. But Gruden is taking it all the way. And he means business. And this lawsuit reflects that he means business. And I don't think if anybody if anybody thinks John Gruden's going away, well, you're crazy because he's not. So a uh, lot of locker room talk between Gruden and Bruce Allen. And as I said, some of the emails would cause Gruden to blush on second viewing. And he even included um, the great Joe Biden, who at the time was vice president and Obama in some of the emails. Those are some of the more accurate ones. Trust me. (laughs) But he, he also said some things that when people talk about it and hear it, they're going to say, Well, you can't say that stuff, but this was a personal email account. The question is, why were they leaked, Roger Goodell? Because Roger Goodell hates John Gruden as much as John Gruden hates Roger Goodell. Now, you say, well, how? how? Why did this start? Gruden's been a a phenomenal coach, a great voice in terms of Monday Night Football for the NFL. But in some of the emails to Bruce Allen, he referred to Roger Goodell as a faggot and a clueless anti-football pussy. And then he said he shouldn't have pressured Jeff Fisher as coach of the Rams to draft queers. That was a reference to drafting Michael Sam. I'm reading the emails to you. That's These aren't my words. But this is how guys in the locker room talk. Sorry, but it is. And again, it was from his personal email account to which the NFL really has no business. And why were only those leaked out out of 650,000? Gruden called Biden a nervous, clueless pussy. <laughs> he said the same about DeMaurice Smith, who's black. He was the executive director of the NFL Players Association. A lot of that was with regard to making, trying to make football so safe and essentially eliminating a lot of contact in the game. So now Gruden is pissed off. He doesn't care about the money. He doesn't need the money. He signed a $100 million deal with the Raiders. He's going to get a lot of that. I don't know how much Davis has paid him already. 
He was making $8 million a year when he was at ESPN doing Monday Night Football. So Gruden is not a guy whose motivation is financial. He wants a piece of John, or excuse me, Roger Goodell's scalp. And he may well get it. And in the meantime, his lawsuit is holding up the deal to sell the Redskins, now called the Commanders, for $6 billion. There's a $6 billion deal that's held up because of all of what's going on with Gruden's lawsuit. A league source and with personal ties to Gruden said, John's going to take this all the way. It's as personal as it gets. He wants the lawsuit to go into a courtroom where Goodell and Snyder and Jeffrey Pash, the NFL attorney, would have to testify under oath about their handling of his emails. He thinks Goodell and and Jeff Pash screwed him. He's gunning for all of them. This is going to get ugly. It's already ugly. It's going to get uglier. There isn't any doubt about that. And I don't know how the NFL gets out of this one because you know what? John Gruden won't settle. He will not settle. So what's going to happen with the, the ongoing sale when it comes to the Redskins slash commanders? Stay tuned. No one knows. All kinds of bad news in football. The University of Tennessee got hit. The NCAA announced their punishment for the University of Tennessee's football program. Now, this was not while their current coach, Josh Heupel, was there. These were violations that were uh, committed under Jeremy Pruitt, who was the former coach that preceded uh, Josh Heupel, and Butch Johnson, who preceded Pruitt. Butch, Butch, uh, Butch Jones, I'm sorry. Butch Jones was fired. Then Pruitt came on. They got him from Alabama. He was the defensive coordinator at Alabama, I recall. And so now you've got Tennessee being punished. Once again, the NCAA punishes kids and people that weren't even around when these things happened. They weren't there. Josh Heupel was not there. He was at Central Florida, and prior to that, he was at Missouri. So they went out and they hired an Alabama defensive coordinator coach. And he then became the head coach of Tennessee in 2018. The the allegations against him and his wife and other coaches were outrageous. There were 200 separate violations that consisted of cash or gifts that totaled $60,000 given to players and their families by Pruitt and his wife and other people. Now, those are the allegations, and it doesn't sound like anyone's disputing them. The University of Tennessee cooperated in the investigation, so they're not facing a postseason ban. But they are facing an $8 million fine and all kinds of scholarship limitations against Josh Heupel. Josh Heupel did nothing wrong. This is where the NCAA is so ass-backward in what they do. I mean, why why would this 
be targeted at Josh Heupel. It will hurt him in his recruiting efforts. The reductions in scholarships and this type of stuff can only hurt him. And why? He didn't do anything wrong. So you give Tennessee an $8 million fine, which, of course, donors will gladly step up and pay. Jeremy Pruitt got a six-year show-cause penalty, which means before he can ever coach in college football again, he has to show cause to the NCAA why he should be allowed to. So he's out for quite a while. He had a $13 million buyout in his contract. That's currently under litigation with Tennessee. But it's unbelievable, these kinds of violations. By the way, while Pruitt was at Tennessee, he went 16-19. and 19. Josh Heupel went 11-2 and two last year and won the Orange Bowl. So that's interesting, isn't it? But Pruitt's wife was involved. He and his wife were alleged to have made direct payments to recruits in July of 2022. They also paid for cars for players, down payments on new cars for players. I mean, it's crazy stuff. But now poor Hypel has to suffer the reductions in scholarships. And that's not fair. There's nothing fair about that. So Pruitt and his assistants are done. By the way, his his wife, Casey Pruitt, was a former compliance officer with the NCAA. <laughs> so either she was a witting um, compliance spouse or she was a co-conspirator in knowing how to get around the NCA and, and not get caught, and yet she didn't do very well there. She failed miserably. Assistant coaches Derek Ainsley got a two-year show cause ban. Brian Niedermeyer, a five-year. Sheldon Felton, a four-year. Recruiting director Bethany Gunn, five years. Assistant director Shantrice Boone, ten years. Wow. Student assistant Michael Magnus, three years. Five-year probation, 28 scholarship cuts. Now, 28 scholarship cuts over five years can really cripple a football team. There are also recruiting restrictions, vacated wins, which no one cares about. Everybody knows who won those games. Same thing they did to Penn State. I guess the NCAA thinks that really has some teeth. It's stupid. It's a waste of time. So Casey Pruitt, his the coach's wife, apparently was – directly involved in paying for the cars and rent for recruits, players, and their families. I mean, this this gets as dirty as it gets, really. It's amazing that you thought you could get away with all of these things. I mean, all it takes is for one player to not come to Tennessee and be mad at you in the recruiting process, and they'll rat you out. One of the recruits actually went to Tennessee alleging that Casey Pruitt paid $6,000 to the mother for a down payment on a 2017 Nissan Armada. And from January of 19 until March of 2021, 25 monthly payments of 500 a month were paid for the car by the Pruitts. 
A separate incident, a player's mother told the investigators Pruitt paid 1600 in cash to her for a security deposit on a Knoxville rental home and also arranged for a second payment of 1600 because she was out of town. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible what went down at Tennessee. But the scholarship restrictions are killers for Josh Heupel, and that should not happen. As far as I'm concerned, that's atrocious. These players that are there now, the players that came in for Josh Heupel and Josh Heupel and his coaching staff, none of these people did anything wrong. Why is this NCAA so backward that they do things like this? It never made any sense, never will make any sense, and yet they continue to do it. And while all this is going on, if you thought things were bad enough at Northwestern when they fired Pat Fitzgerald earlier this week, based on a culture of hazing in the football program, now they fired their baseball coach, Jim Foster, after an investigation found that he bullied and was abusive to players. Now, his his mistake is that he went 10 and 40. Won 10 games, lost 40 out of 50 tries. That'll get you fired. So they were looking for a reason to fire him. But the athletic director, who apparently involved in keeping these coaches and hiring them and bringing them out, he didn't bring Pat Fitzgerald on. He was there a long time. But he hired the baseball coach. Nothing will ever be more important in Northwestern than providing its students a place that allows them to develop in the classroom, the community, and in competition at the highest level. Really? Well, you hired this baseball coach. Now, when they say he bullied players, I can only imagine what he's what. What must he have said? Hey, moron, throw some strikes. Who knows? Their claim is that he wanted players to come back early from injury. Well, every coach wants that, but they don't overrule the medical staff, and there's no evidence that this guy overruled the medical staff. Three assistant coaches left the team prior to these allegations coming forward. Ten players have entered the transfer portal. Apparently there were expletive-laced tirades at his staff. Hey, have you ever heard of Bobby Knight? This has been going on in sports forever. I'm sorry, but I'm a little old school. When a coach cusses at an assistant coach or a player, that's not considered bullying. That's considered normal. Normal. There's nothing bullying about it. It's the way it is. But we live in a candy-ass society now. And so since we live in this candy-ass society, that's what they consider it. And all of these administrators and all of these uh, league owners and coaches all have, well, the the league owners and the league uh, administrators don't have their hands tied, but they simply cave in to the smallest amount of pressure from outside forces made up by the minutiae of people in this country. In Jeremy Pruitt's case, he and his wife and those assistant coaches, if the allegations are true, and they haven't really disputed them, so they must be true, deserve to be fired. But the school and the program didn't deserve what they got. Fire the guilty parties, Punish the guilty parties. Stay true to the show cause orders, not allowing them to come back and coach for a certain period of time unless they can prove, I guess, somehow that they've changed their ways. I don't know how you can prove that unless you're actually coaching. But it blows me away 
that you punish the current players and coaching staff and potential players because they're limiting their scholarships. What is right about that? We don't live in a society, or we never did, where you punish innocent people. But the NCAA has made a habit of that throughout history. They're always punishing the innocent players. The players who had nothing to do with the violations, the coaching staff who had nothing to do with the violations, punish the school all you want. Why don't you punish the athletic director, the guy that hired these people? Punish him or her. They should punish Missouri's athletic director simply for giving drink shits an extension and a raise. Never mind that he did anything wrong. He's a horrible coach. But what's the point of punishing Josh Heupel? It's never made any sense. I'm waiting for one of these schools or or one of these groups of players or one of these coaches who were the successors to the cheaters to file a lawsuit against the NCAA. We saw where the lawsuit went against the NCAA when Penn State filed it, when the Paternos filed it, when other parties in State College Pennsylvania filed it. They won. The NCAA is a little dictatorship. And it's run by arrogant, pompous asses who love power. They've been brought to their knees by the Penn State community. And I would imagine if the Tennessee community and Josh Heupel decide it, they'll be brought to their knees by them as well. But my guess is Tennessee is going to be cowards. And they're going to go ahead and accept the penalties because they didn't get a postseason ban meaning they can compete for the national championship and they can go to bowl games. It's harder to recruit players if you can't compete for the national championship. You can't go to bowl games. Many schools, it doesn't matter. You're not going to win the national championship anyway. But it's incredible, isn't it? By the way, Northwestern has selected their defensive coordinator, a coach by the name of David Braun, as the interim head coach. Now, I can only think that Braun... Uh, is a guy who was brought on by Pat Fitzgerald because they had a like-minded philosophy. He was brought in just last January as defensive coordinator. But now he'll be the interim head coach. He was defensive coordinator at North Dakota State. They won the national championships, Division I AA, in 1919 and in 2021. So he's clearly a competent coach, and he'll coach Northwestern now, at least for the interim period. But doesn't he share some of the philosophies that Pat Fitzgerald shared? He does. And that's further evidence that Northwestern understands, and per the legal report that the investigation was guided by, Pat Fitzgerald did not know anything about these hazing incidents. Wasn't responsible for them, didn't do them, excuse me, didn't lead them, didn't encourage them, knew nothing about them. That's what the report said, conducted by an independent law firm. Strange as that may seem, Northwestern suspended Pat Fitzgerald for two weeks without pay and then went back and fired him. Crazy stuff going on. Mike Gundy is the head coach at Oklahoma State. He's been the football coach there forever. They've weathered their own NCAA accusational storms through the years. But Oklahoma, their chief rival, is leaving to go to the Southeastern Conference along with Texas next year. 
And if you recall, when Missouri divorced itself from the Big 12, their rivalry with Kansas hit the skids. Now, they've subsequently played in basketball the last couple of years, only to see Missouri get spanked by Kansas both times. But football has never been played again. They're going to play again, but they're not going to play every year. So the oldest rivalry west of the Mississippi River was summarily ended the day Missouri left the Big 12. Bill Self, the Kansas basketball coach, claimed at the time, well, they're the ones who ended it. They're the ones who left the conference. And yet Colorado left the conference, but Bill Self plays them. But he just wouldn't play Missouri. So Self is a coward, and he's full of crap, and he's a two-faced liar. Now Mike Gundy seems to be adopting the Bill Self philosophy with regard to Oklahoma. When Oklahoma and Oklahoma State played every year in football forever, it was called the Bedlam game. And it was one of the greatest rivalry games in college football history. And according to Gundy, he has no interest in playing it again. No, but we have nine um, conference games scheduled. And then we have, I think, through, I don't know, 15 years, we're scheduled all the way up. And we're full for the most part, and we have power five teams. And I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. Oklahoma State's not going to change what you do because Oklahoma chose to go to the SEC. They need to change what they do because they're the ones that made their mind up to go to the SEC. So with all the talk from administration and people saying that Oklahoma State needs to do this and that, all Oklahoma had to do was not go to the SEC. So it is what it is. We can cut right to the choice. So for me, um, I want to listen to the board. I'll listen to the president. I'll listen to the AD. If that's something they want to do, I'm good. But I don't think it's going to happen based on the way the schedule is. And everybody needs to realize it didn't have to happen if it didn't change leagues. There's a lot of bitterness in those comments. And I understand it because college football and college basketball are ruining themselves. They're ruining themselves because of the creations of all of these super conferences. At some point, the greed has to stop. There's going to be a cap on the money. There has to be. We'll get Joe Castiglione on to talk about Oklahoma's reasoning and decisions for leaving the Big 12. I know for a long time there was a lot of anger from Big 12 members directed toward Texas because of how they were trying to ransack the league and create a network of their own for their own money. But now the SEC is accepting both Texas and Oklahoma. So all of the Texas schools that had rivalries with Texas are now no longer going to have them, except for Texas A&M. Because Texas A&M left the Big 12 and went to the SEC a few years ago. Now when Texas A&M left, everybody was critical of Texas A&M because the Texas-Texas A&M game couldn't be played anymore. Well, actually it could have been. But it wasn't going to be an automatic game. And it was always played on Thanksgiving. It was one of the traditional games of the Turkey Day holiday weekend. Well, now, starting next year, they'll be able to play it again, but only because Texas is now joining the SEC. I'm not a fan of these super conferences. I like to see these teams, uh, the smaller schools and the smaller conferences thrive. They're struggling now because they keep having to add members since many of their members are leaving to go to the Big 12, for instance, to replace Oklahoma and Texas. But the biggest casualty is for the fans. Fans lose these tremendous rivalry games. 
I mean, the state of Oklahoma, let's face it, there's not a whole lot to do there. But on one Saturday every November, you had those two schools and all of the alums at both schools and all of the citizens of the state of Oklahoma paying attention to one football game, the Bedlam game, and now it's gone. As much as Kansas wasn't very good in football all those years, the Missouri-Kansas game had meaning. If you don't think so, ask Al Onofrio, who was the head coach at Missouri, who had a 1-6 record against Kansas, and yet defeated Giants like Southern Cal, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Nebraska, and Oklahoma in their heyday. But he couldn't beat Kansas. Alabama he beat. But he couldn't beat Kansas, and he was fired. So that rivalry carried weight. And, of course, in basketball, it carried a lot of weight. Norm Stewart beat Kansas a lot, and Kansas beat Missouri. That basketball game was played at least twice a year, home and home, and then maybe in the Big 12 Conference postseason tournament. Prior to that, the Big 8 tournament. So those games had a lot of play, and fan bases at both schools love the games. So what all these schools are saying is to the fans, go F off. We don't care. There's money to be made. And from the standpoint of the athletic directors, they're probably at the mercy of it because the fans demand winning teams. They demand the top money be spent to get the best coaches. And in Tennessee's part, underneath Jeremy Pruitt, to buy the best players. And so they're under pressure. And so they go where their money is. It's a cesspool, really. And the only losers are the fans, which is always the case. So the next time you hear anyone say, hey, we're, in, we're, we're thinking of the fans, you know they're not. So in one respect, I don't blame Mike Gundy for being pissed. On the other side of the coin, if Oklahoma State were offered membership in the SEC and not Oklahoma, Oklahoma State would have run to the SEC. We know that. He knows that. And that's the kind of stuff that has to stop. They're ruining the sport. I mean, those of us who love college athletics, it's not the same anymore. Thank God the Big Ten had the foresight to not end the Michigan-Ohio State rivalry. But they could have, and I'm surprised they didn't. It's just gotten out of hand, and that's a shame. So a lot of bad news in college sports. And then there's a apparently a betting scandal of all things in college baseball. You say, what? And we've got Bob Huggins at West Virginia suing West Virginia because he says he didn't resign, and if they don't reinstate him, he'll sue them. And we've got, a, a, believe it or not, a betting scandal at Alabama in their baseball program. Now, here's something that, that troubles me, and I've always believed this to be true. When Quinn Snyder came to Missouri as the basketball coach and was caught cheating, and I mean really cheating, he made the comment, because he had played at Duke and he had coached under Krzyzewski at Duke, that, hey, we did this all the time at Duke. Now, nothing was done to Duke. There was no investigation into Duke. That comment just hung out there like an albatross over the neck of Mike Krzyzewski and Duke. 
Nothing ever happened. So now we see Jeremy Pruitt, the coach at Tennessee, the head coach, who came directly from Alabama as defensive coordinator, was involved in the Alabama football program for years. He commits all of these violations, and no one questions what Alabama's been doing? I mean, that's a little bit odd. The college baseball betting scandal surrounds an Alabama-LSU game in April. Security footage and a borderline spoken admission to a teller have revealed a new level of incompetence while trying to pull off a scam of this proportion. So what is it? We don't know yet. No details. That's just the uh, the word that just broke. Don't know what it is, but we'll try to find out. But why aren't you asking questions about Nick Saban's program? Now, I'm a Nick Saban fan. I don't think Nick Saban's a cheater. That's my gut feeling right now. But how in the world did Jeremy Pruitt learn how to cheat like this? He was intimately involved in the uh, Alabama football program. Where do you think he learned it? Nick Saban rules that Alabama football program with an iron fist. An iron fist. So Pruitt learned it somewhere. Logic would tell us he learned it at Alabama. All right, as I speak, I've got new details on the baseball betting scandal down in Alabama. We don't want to hear from those people. And here's what it says. The baseball coach down there is Brad Bohannon. Now, he was fired at the end of this season because there were suspicious wagers that had several states stop betting on college baseball games. A youth league coach from Indiana, keep this in mind now, a little league coach from Indiana was captured on surveillance video texting Bohannon, the Alabama coach, using an encrypted messaging app while attempting to place a $100,000 wager at a sportsbook in Ohio. The wager had LSU, the top-ranked team, beating Alabama. Now, that large of a bet on a college baseball game raises suspicions, and it did so. Bohan and the Alabama coach had allegedly tipped off the better to a last-minute pitching change. Now, why? According to the Alabama coach, by the way, Alabama lost the game, as scripted, 8-6. to six. He changed pitchers because his original starter had back tightness. Except you couldn't be any more reckless than using an encrypted texting message to tip off a better who goes in and makes a $100,000 bet. Sports Illustrated has broken the story, and they're saying that Bohannon was aware of the wagers being placed and other suspicious, suspicious bets placed that same day by the Indiana gambler by the name of Neff, his last name. This is the Little League baseball coach in Indiana, Bert Eugene Neff Jr. This is one of the crazier 
stories I've ever heard of. Now, in addition to being fired as the Alabama baseball coach of a pretty good program, they were 43-21 and 21 during the regular season. Bohannon's going to probably face criminal charges. I mean, they threw the game, and he tipped off betters. Now, when they file the bank records, they're going to find out, I'm going to guarantee you, that some of that $100,000 went to the coach. I'll guarantee it. We know what happens when you when you file bank records. Or excuse me, when you follow bank records, we've seen James Comer follow them with the Bidens. It leads to corruption. It leads to should lead to jail time. We'll see if it does. Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback for the New York Jets, has his team appearing on Hard Knocks this year. Now, that's the HBO documentary series that they do every summer on training camp. They pick one NFL team and follow them around. They've got very intrusive cameras. A lot of players and coaches don't like it. But, of course, the NFL forces teams to do so, and Rodgers is no fan of it. One of the only things I like about Hard Knocks is the voice of God who narrates it. Live. I hope I get to meet him. But look, you know, I understand the, the appeal with us. Obviously, there's a lot of eyes on me, a lot of eyes on our team, a lot of expectations for our squad. So uh, they force it down our throats, and we got to deal with it. He's talking about Lee Schreiber, who's the narrator for sports documentaries at HBO, and he is spectacular. But the voice of God, sorry, that title belongs to John Facenda who's the late narrator of NFL films and the greatest narrator ever of documentaries. There's nobody close. Lee Schreiber is spectacular. Trust me. He is one of the best. If you've ever heard any of the HBO um, documentaries and you've listened to Lee Schreiber narrate them, he's probably the best living narrator. (laughs) And I'm telling you, there aren't many like him. But there is one, a guy by the name of Josh Charles, who narrates the Football Life documentaries for the NFL Network. He's right there with him. Those guys are great. And I promised that we would get to uh, Roger Federer. But before we do that, Chris Eubanks, the young American player, black tennis player, men's singles championship, went to the quarterfinal round before he lost to Medvedev, the fifth-seeded player. It was a spectacular run, and in fact, Chris Eubanks had control of the match. He was up two sets to one, lost the fourth set on a tiebreaker, and then got destroyed in the fifth set after he had mentally lost his edge. But I hope that we're going to hear more from Chris Eubanks on the tennis court. He's an affable young guy, a hell of a player, as wiry as the skinniest thing you've ever seen. And they caught up with him afterwards and wondered if he understood just how much his life is going to change after this Cinderella run in the Wimbledon Men's Championship? No, to answer your question, I, I don't think I really understand it just yet. Uh, I've tried to do a good job over the past three weeks of just kind of blocking out a lot of the outside noise and just focus on each match individually and each opponent. And naturally, I see my phone's been going off. Uh, I, I had it on Do Not Disturb for probably the past two and a half weeks. So I, I tried to just kind of focus in on everything and allow all of my energy to be here in Wimbledon, but I think things are going to be a little bit different when I get back stateside, and honestly, I'm pretty excited about it. He ought to be excited about it. It's a tremendous, tremendous uh, achievement to get to make that quarterfinal run like he did. Other players, seem he seems to be popular with other players, including Sloane Stevens of the United States. She's one of the women's side players. And then Francis Tiafoe, 
who's the number 10-ranked male tennis player in the world. They actually have nicknames. Remember I told you he's very wiry. Oh, Lord. Don't even get me started on that giraffe. Jesus. We love Chris. We love Daddy Longlegs. I just, I... Well, Eubanks' nickname is really Toothpick because he's so skinny. Does Eubanks enjoy the nicknames? Uh, so I have to give credit where credit is due. Coco was the one who started the giraffe nickname. So when you hear that and it's starting to take hold, that start that was started by Coco Golf. Francis Tiafo did start off the name Toothpick. Um, I, I used to fight them on it, but at this point, I, I view them as a ter- as terms of endearment. Um, I'm really close with 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 everyone that you, you you just mentioned, and a lot of the American players, a lot of the players on tour. It's just I I think I just have a good rapport. Um, with a lot of the, the men and women on tour. And, and I think seeing them be happy for my success, it's probably some of the most gratifying, uh, I think, feelings that I experienced over the past few weeks because they understand what it's like and they know the hard work and sacrifice that it takes to be able to have results like this. And, and honestly, we see each other probably, probably more than we see our own families. So it's a little bit like a second family. And when you see, you know, those people that you're competing against and competing with, be happy for your success. I think it really, really means a lot. Carpe diem, Chris Eubanks. I'm a fan of that kid. I hope he does continue. I hope it wasn't a flash in the pan, once in a lifetime kind of moment. I hope it continues as we get ready for the U.S. Open coming up in September. But the French Open is next. So hopefully he can play on clay. Most Americans cannot play on clay. Most of the great players didn't play well on clay. The exceptions were Borg and Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, for instance, only won one clay title, just one. Novak Djokovic has only won one time in in France, I believe. I'll, I'll double check Djokovic, but that's that's an amazing accomplishment to try to win over there. The clay courts have given Americans fits forever. It was always the one missing link in their Grand Slam career goals. No, I take it back. Djokovic won three times in France. So the French Open is not next. They've already had the French Open this year. I got my calendar mixed up. They changed their calendar. Golf has changed its calendar. It's hard to keep up with these tournaments now, these majors. We've got the British Open next week on the professional golf tour. And it stayed where it was. But the other ones kind of, and the Masters stayed where it was. The PGA and the Players' Championship both switched. So we've got the U.S. Open coming next for Chris Eubanks, and hopefully he'll not only show up there, but he'll play great. And, of course, he'll have the crowd behind him in New York. You get an American player that makes noise on the men's side, look out, the crowd is with you. So Roger Federer, who in my book, as I said at the top of the show, is the classiest, one of the classiest athletes, if not the classiest I've ever seen. And when he destroyed you, he destroyed you in a very quiet way, but he was just killing you all the way. The guy was as smooth as could be, one of the few remaining one-handed backhand players, 20 major titles, just a dominant, dominant player. He went to, He's like Jack Nicklaus. Nicklaus won more majors than anybody else, but he also had more second-place finishes than anybody else. That's where Federer, every time you look up with Federer, he was in the Final Four. He was in the semifinals of every Grand Slam event for a long time. Long career, he just retired. Last year, he's 41 years old. So how does it feel to no longer compete? He had a knee injury that took him out, but he's happy with it. 
feels okay now. Uh, last year was hard uh, because I was still trying to play, but uh, struggling with my knees so bad. And you know, um, uh, last year was the hundred year anniversary of Center Court, and uh, I came back and I got an incredible ovation. Did you know at that point that? Mm -mm. That was probably going to be the moment. I mean, I knew it, it could be yeah. because of you know the, the issues I was facing with the knee, uh, but I remember saying on court that I hope to see you next year, and I truly meant that. Yeah. I didn't talk to anybody about it really, but eventually, you know, decide where am we, where am I going to retire? How, how painful is it going to be, or how <laughs> uh, much of a celebration will it be? And it ended up everything and more for me. I thought it was beautiful, and being surrounded by Rafa, Novak, Murray. Borg, McEnroe, Labour, you name it, Edberg, they were all there, my team, my family. Um, so it was it was a very, very nice end because I was really, truly dreading that moment uh, on how to go out of the game. This is a guy who, in, in 20 plus years of playing professional tennis, not a hint of a scandal. I never saw him even get in an argument with an umpire. I'm sure he did. He questioned calls, but I don't, I don't recall seeing it. I mean, everything he... he really followed Bjorn Borg's demeanor on court as a fellow Swede. And now that he's out, after being a worldwide tennis champion, does he get recognized? Does he have any funny anecdotes about his post-tennis career? I mean, I've had a moment when I did uh, the Orient Express. I was in Venice, and a guy chased me down. He was like, oh, can I please take a picture? I'm like, uh, yeah, uh, are you who I think you are? I'm like, no, I don't know who you think I am. Because like, hey, are you Nadal? I'm like... I'm so sorry, I'm not, you know, so I kept on walking and the guy looked at me and goes, oh, such a pity, he's not the doubt. But he kept on looking back and, and I thought he was going to maybe figure it out, but he didn't, you know, so that was a quite a... He missed his moment. He missed his moment, well, he clearly didn't want a picture with me, he wanted a picture with Rafa. But uh, anyway, so I have obviously moments like these. <laughs> he thought he was Rafael Nadal with good reason. Those two were linked in major finals seemingly year after year, especially at Wimbledon. So he wanted a picture with Rafa. You know, it's funny because he talks about his retirement celebration with all those great players present. Some of them were past players, some of them present. Nadal, one of his great rivals, Novak Djokovic, one of his great rivals, were present at his retirement. I remember Ily Nastasi telling me years ago, he and Jimmy Connors were the best friends on tour, the bad boys of tennis, right? And yet when they played each other, you never saw that friendship on the court. And I asked Nastasi about it one time, and he said to me, or excuse me, I asked Jimmy Connors about it one time, and he said to me that Nastasi was just another player on the other side of the net. He said, I didn't think about our friendship when I was out there. I just wanted to kill him. And that's the mentality of a professional athlete. You have to have it or you're stuck. So Roger Federer has four kids, two daughters. They're the two oldest and two younger sons. And he said he was glad that the girls didn't get involved in tennis to a high degree because he said at that time his life was chaos, the way he was traveling. His wife and the kids went with him, and now he has a more settled life, so his sons are involved a little bit more seriously. But does he coach them? I'm not the coach. I am the dad. And the dad's <laughs> advice, as we know, only goes so far. And uh, It doesn't matter if you've won Wimbledon or not. You're still the dad. <laughs> These kids have a 20 Grand Slam title winner giving them advice but it doesn't matter because he's the dad. They'll listen to the coach. I was talking to a friend of mine this morning. I said, you know, your dad can tell you anything you want. If your coach tells you the same thing after you've ignored your dad, you'll do what the coach says. It's incredible. And that's what Roger Federer was joking about there. But he had a great moment 
as a former tennis player, he went to a concert with Coldplay. Now, apparently he knew some of the Coldplay members in the band. And one of them texted him and said, we want you to come up on stage uh, during a number. And Federer wasn't sure wasn't sure what they wanted, wasn't sure if he was going to look like a fool. So he received the text when he was out at dinner with his wife and two of his daughters. And here's how it went. The greatest tennis player of all time, Mr. Roger Federer. On Saturday night, uh, Chris Martin, he writes and he goes like, do you want to come and uh, help us with one of the songs? You know, I'm like, really? I don't know. And I was sitting at dinner and uh, I read the message to uh, my wife, my two daughters and some friends. And they're like, oh my God, you got to do it. And Myla, my daughter, looks at me and goes like, Papa, go. You only live once. And I'm like, really? Like, I I, I should be 50,000 people. And I don't even know what I'm going to do. And then I'm like, you know what, Chris, I'm, I'll do it. What do you want me to do? He's like, all you got to do is do the shaker, you know, <laughs> give a beat to the song. So my, I finished my music uh, career on top because I just retired from music as well the last night. <laughs> you can just tell this guy's first class. But you still wonder, an athlete at the top of his game, a dominant player for so long, you got to miss it, don't you? Funny enough, I don't miss so much being out on court anymore just because I know the body couldn't do it, you know. So I think it's good that I couldn't or I can't, which then lets me watch and follow tennis as a total fan. I think planning ahead and planning quite far ahead for personal moments with my family and friends, I think that's what I enjoy the most. Life's honestly been good, and it came gradually, you know, with COVID and my knee issues. I didn't play so much anymore at the end. So actually, I feel like transition was super smooth. How cool is that? You root for a guy to be able to make that transition in a super smooth way because it's got to be difficult. I mean, there's no way you're going to find that high that you experienced at Center Court Wimbledon, Roland Garros Stadium in Paris, the U.S. Open or the Australian Open, you're not going to find that anywhere in any other walk of life. But there's a guy with his priorities plugged into the right place. He's simply enjoying his family and his life that he earned. And he's been the spectacular ambassador for tennis. A guy who is a 20-time major winner, an eight-time Wimbledon winner, and he went back to Wimbledon this year as a ball boy. Talk about humbling yourself. How cool would it be if you're a player and you look up and Roger Federer is a ball boy? Well, we're going to have John Ziegler as a guest in the next hour tell us about how he thinks Jerry Sandusky was innocent in the Penn State scandal. That's right. I said it. Innocent. Now, this was an interview taped a while ago, but you'll you'll love hearing this, I think. Remember the case. Sandusky was the former assistant coach accused of child pedophilia and in a bad way. I mean, there was a, there was a lot to unpack. Sandusky's serving his life, the rest of his life in prison right now. But John Ziegler insists that he's innocent, and he has some things to back it up. Also, we're going to make a comparison of Shohan Otani, Shohei Otani, as he gets ready to start the remainder of the Angels season. And comparisons are coming up with Babe Ruth because Otani pitches and he plays in the everyday lineup. He hits a lot of home runs, and he's a very good pitcher. We'll break that down for you real quickly when we come back from the break. But our good friends at stl-cars.com want you to know that buying a new car, new vehicle of any kind isn't a headache. It doesn't mean a trip to the dentist. It doesn't mean bashing your head against the desk of a general manager at a car dealership who's trying to rip you off for 15 bucks on a paperwork fee. It doesn't have to be that way. 
Go to stl-cars.com. Take a look at all of their SUVs, their trucks, their cars on their website. Pick one. All you have to do is pick one. Then give them a call or text at 314-626-3251. 626-3251. They're right here in Ellisville, right off Manchester Road, locally owned and operated. Ask for Don, 314-626-3251. Tell him what you want to pay for the vehicle. He'll find it for you, get it for you, deliver it to you, and it's yours. I can say that because I've purchased three vehicles from him. My son just purchased one. It's the easiest way to do automobile purchasing. He deals with a lot of the blues players, takes care of them. 314-626-3251. Ask for Don. When you call or text, tell him, here's the one I want. Here's the price I want to pay. By the way, if you can't find exactly what you want on the website, call him anyway. Text him. Tell him, here's what I'm looking for, Don. I can't find it on the website. Can you find it for me? And he will. They have an extensive inventory of cars all around the country. And they'll get it for you. It's amazing. 314-626-3251. We're back with more of our show after this.
welcome you back in. Kevin Slayton with you in the Monster Energy Drink. STL-Cars.com. King's Court on KevinSlaytonShow.com. Don't forget the podcast. You can hear it here a little bit after we're done with the show. You can also hear it on Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Anchor, and any place that plays and you listen to good podcasts because that's where we are. We're everywhere. Our great friends at Monster Energy Drink bring you our game, our shows every day, and we thank them for that. And in fact, you know what? I'm going to pour myself a Monster Energy Drink right now because I need that punch of energy. I got to get through the show. I need a push. It's Friday. I got to focus. I got to do a great show for you. I got to be at my best, the top of my game. So I want the most badass energy drink on the planet, and that's Monster Energy, where I'll unleash the beast, and you can too. Monster Energy drink is not just a drink. It's a lifestyle in a can that I just opened. Woo! I'm ready. Well, before we get to John Ziegler and his case for John uh, for Jerry Sandusky's innocence, I want to talk a little bit as we start the uh, baseball season back up tonight. The Angels will be playing, and Shohei Otani, of course, is all the rage right now in Major League Baseball. This is the guy who pitches for the Angels. He also plays uh, every day for the Angels when he's not pitching. So we haven't seen that since the days, really, of Babe Ruth. We talked about some two-way players in football yesterday. But we're talking a little bit different here. Because baseball and playing both ways, well, not both ways because it's not really both ways, but playing the two positions, a pitcher and an everyday player, a position player, is is virtually unheard of. So when you see Otani doing it, it's uh, it's pretty special. Right now, as the Angels sit here, he has 32 home runs, 71 RBIs, 15 doubles in just 89 games. 32 home runs in 89 games. He's hitting 302. Now, those are great numbers. And people all over baseball are all getting together and they're saying, wow, I mean, th- this is this is unheard of, isn't it? And you think to yourself, it is. Nobody can do this. We've never seen this before. Well, we haven't seen this before because we weren't alive when Babe Ruth was there. But you have seen something like this. Now, you're talking about, baseball fans are, when they talk about Otani being the greatest ever, we've never seen anything like this before. They're talking about what Otani might be, but not what he is right now. Those numbers I just gave you were great numbers. 302, 32 and 71 in 89 games. Sensational. But Babe Ruth trounces Otani when you make the comparison. Let's just take Otani's top three seasons because he hasn't played that long yet. If you use this season's projections and you project him out based on the numbers I just gave you to 57 home runs, 140 RBIs, and a 277 average. I'm sorry. Uh, 57 homers and 140 RBIs. Use those as the power numbers for this year's projections, and then take that as one of his top three seasons. And you'll have an average season in his top three of 46 home runs, 112 runs batted in, a 277 average. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's it's phenomenal. Cardinals would love to have a guy average 46 home runs, 
112 RBIs, 277 average for the next three seasons, wouldn't they? They'd plug him in as number three in their order right away. But here's Babe Ruth's top three seasons. So when you say we've never seen anything like Otani, you might want to check yourself. Babe Ruth's top three seasons, a 370 batting average, that's 93 points higher than Otani. 58 home runs. That's 12 home runs more than Otani. Keep in mind, Babe Ruth played 154 games, not 162. And 162 runs batted in for Babe Ruth. More than a run a game. Otani, 112. So you're essentially 100 points higher almost in batting average. These are the best three-year spans. So that's as a hitter. Now let's take their top three seasons as a pitcher because Babe Ruth pitched too. And when someone tells me that they can make an argument that somebody else is a, is a better player all time than Babe Ruth, I always say to them, find somebody who achieved what he did on the pitcher's mound and then tell me somebody who hit 700 home runs. And if it's the same guy, I'll listen. Otherwise, there's no comparison. So you take Otani's top three years as a pitcher, and he would average 13-6, and six, a 2.91 earned run average. Nothing wrong with that. Again, the Cardinals would love to have that. But Babe Ruth's top three pitching seasons, he averaged 22 wins and 11 losses and a 2.06 earned run average. He also set World Series pitching records that lasted 30 years. We may never see what Otani can do in the World Series because he plays for the Angels. If he continues to play for them, like Mike Trout, who continued to play for them, he'll tell us that he doesn't really care about postseason play because either one of those players could sign with whomever they want. So Otani better than Babe Ruth? You're on another planet because Babe Ruth is. He was a much better starting pitcher and an unbelievably better hitter. Far better at both parts of the game. They refer to Otani now as a circus act because these people have no sense of history. Media people today, baseball fans today, have no sense of history. Keep in mind there was no DH for Babe Ruth to hide behind. When he played the field, he played the field every single game. Otani gets to rest. He can play DH. Never has to leave the dugout except to bat. The Babe took the Yankees to 10 World Series. He won seven. Otani hasn't been to the postseason. No World Series. Ruth led the league in 157 offensive categories over his career. 157. Otani has led baseball at nine offensive categories. Ruth led the league in 10 pitching categories. Otani, two. So when it's all said and done, when Otani hangs it up and retires, then we can make the real comparison. My guess is it won't be close because it isn't close now. So the next time someone mentions Shohei Otani and you've never seen anything like this before, just say Babe Ruth. That's all you need to say. Now, they might give you 150 different excuses why it's harder today, blah, 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 blah. But I'm not so sure. That's my guess. It's unbelievable how great Babe Ruth was.
Unbelievable. And keep in mind that he had Lou Gehrig in his lineup, and people can say, well, that helped. Sure did. But the Babe hit 60 home runs in an era when all other teams combined didn't hit 60, or a lot of the other teams, shouldn't say all of them, combined didn't hit 60. So what he did in the dead ball era is nothing short of miraculous. He retired with a 342 career batting average, by the way, 714 home runs. Will Otani catch him? I'm going to tell you right now, the answer to that is no. He might catch him in career wins as a pitcher because the babe didn't pitch that long. He was he was just it was decided, I should say, that he was so valuable as a hitter and an everyday player that they took him out of the uh, the, the pitching end of the game and he simply became a hitter. And what a hitter. What a hitter. A 342 career average. Can you imagine that? 714 home runs, as we mentioned. Makes you wonder how many runs uh, Otani will drive in someday. How about 2,174? Can you do that? I don't think so. I mean, it's nothing against Otani. Babe won 94 games as a starting pitcher over 20 wins two different years. But he only pitched four full years as a pitcher. Partial years, he pitched as well. But he won 94, lost 46, and had a 2.28 earned run average. His 162-game average, if he had just been a pitcher, he would have had a 21-10 record and a 2.28 earned run average. That's absurd, isn't it? Yes, it's absurd. And as a pitcher in the postseason, of course, it was only the World Series. The Babe went 3-0 and with a 0.87 earn run average. That's right, 3-0, and 0.87 earn run average. Two complete games. Incredible stuff. And they're comparing Otani. You've got to stop that nonsensical comparison. By the way, the babe wasn't training in the offseason either. He was working another job. (laughs) All right, so let's uh, send that out there into the world as we start the second part of the season after the All-Star game. Not the second half. We're nine, ten games into the second half. Second part of the season. All right, about 12 years ago, the Penn State scandal broke with Jerry Sandusky and the Second Mile Foundation that he had where he was accused of cultivating young kids, having sexual, having sex with young boys, and um, doing it while he was still the assistant coach at Penn State. No one knew about it. No one said anything about it. Then he retired because Joe Paterno told him he would not inherit the head coaching job when Joe retired and yet was given a pass by the Penn State administration to still use the facilities at Penn State, the locker rooms, the athletic facilities. So he would, from time to time, bring some of his kids who were at the Second Mile Foundation. These were wayward kids to begin with. And he would bring them over there and 
apparently was seen in the locker room shower one day. It was never decided that it was a sexual encounter, but it was described as horseplay. Well, that led to an unbelievable scandal at Penn State, which cost good people jobs, exposed other people as scoundrels and liars, sent some into jail for a time for something they didn't do, and sent Sandusky to jail for the rest of his life. Most believe rightly so. John Ziegler was covering this story, as I was during the time, uh, without any braggadocio. We were the foremost journalists on this story. We knew everything about it. Ziegler came under the spell, I guess, of Sandusky and his wife and decided that Sandusky was not guilty. I didn't agree with him, but there is some evidence that points to it. And in an interview with John Ziegler, he brought it out to us. We've had quite a day so far here in the Pasquale Ribbon Gateway View at GMC Kingscourt. We had Nick Porter on, a former caddy from uh, two U.S. Opens, to give us the caddy's perspective at a major. Dave Jones, the president of the Texas Junior Golf Tour, regarding uh, Jordan Spieth, who is a friend of his as well as his family. And now we welcome from FramingPaterno.com, John Ziegler. Hello, John. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, Kevin. How are you? Don't forget, I used to run TigerWoodsIsGod.com as well. So, Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, I was world famous. In fact, Sports Illustrated, this is serious, once voted it one of the top three things ever written about Tiger Woods. I used to run a website, TigerWoodsIsGod.com. I had created the first church of Tiger Woods on my radio show before he ever won the Masters the first time. This was back in late 1996 and when I was doing a show in Nashville, Tennessee, which was a really dumb idea because if you know anything about religion, Nashville is the belt buckle of the Bible belt. And people there didn't really take very kindly to uh, the first church of Tiger Woods. But um, I created the website just before he went on his run in 2000. Um, so, I, you know, and then I, and then I ended, up, ended up heckling Tiger at the 2010 uh, U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, which was written about on the back page of Sports Illustrated, although thankfully my name was never involved because it was two weeks before my my wedding and my wife made sure that I kept my uh, driver's license in the car so that if I got caught, uh, it wouldn't be publicized. So uh, I have quite a history with Tiger. You are not a hacker. You and I don't hackle, do we? <laughs> well, you know, I love, I, it, it, to be serious for a moment, I, you know, I really loved the Tiger. I mean, I thought Tiger was the greatest thing that had ever happened in sports in my lifetime. Certainly maybe the best thing that ever happened to golf in the history of the sport. And um, I really got pissed off at him for having blown it all. Just I know, agree. For, for, for basically narcissistic uh, sexual gratification. Um, now, now look, I mean, he got a raw deal in comparison to other athletes uh, for his infidelities, but he kind of set himself up because he had created this persona that was a fraud. And, you know, when the media gets their sinks their teeth into a story that good, they're not going to let oh, yeah. go. No. Um, but, you know, just as comparison, I mean, Arnold Palmer slept around on his wife every bit as much, if not more, as Tiger Woods did. And, you know, Arnold's a, Arnold Palmer is considered to be a god to this day uh, of course he had, he owns his own television network so that always helps uh, it does help and it does help to be in a different era yes yeah very different era no question about that well john a story that we were going to talk some golf and we are going to because i know you're a heck of a golfer yourself but i wanted to uh, knock this story down because this came out late this afternoon before just as we were going on the air that louis free 
this wonderful former FBI director and former federal judge, which, by the way, should show you that you should always question whomever is the FBI director or any federal judge. You should always question their character from this moment forward. Louis Free has done the rare double in, in exposing FBI directors and federal judges as being some of the worst human beings you could ever imagine if they're consistent with him. He is now, after being sued by Graham Spanier, the former Penn State president, Louis Free decides, you know what, I've got to call on all my experience as an FBI director and a federal judge and be as corrupt as I possibly can and have my own judge appointed to hear this case. I mean, this is incredible stuff. It really is. You couldn't make this up, and you can't shame this guy. That's very well said. Now, this is your area of expertise more than than mine, but um, the way I interpreted it, and you can tell me if you think I'm right or wrong, I almost interpreted it as a, as a PR shot across the bow to remind Spanier and, of course, everyone in the media and anyone who might read about it that Spanier is facing criminal charges because the judge that he's suggesting uh, take uh, a look at their their civil case is the judge who's overseeing the the never ending criminal case, right. um, and and to me you know the, you know under the guise of well he already knows the case so you know why doesn't he handle both to me that I've never heard of anything like this uh, to me so it's unprecedented in my knowledge I don't know if it's unprecedented in yours but it, it, to me it just smells very much like an ego screw you. Um, you know, PR move that, hey, buddy, you're suing me, but you're, you remember, you're still under criminal indictment. Of course, that criminal indictment has its origins. Folks, this is important to, to understand. Three and a half years ago, three and a half years ago, the first indictments uh, against Curley and Schultz were handed down. About a half year later, Spanier was later indicted just days before the Attorney General's tenure ended, and there was an election in the state of Pennsylvania. Like, that wasn't a coincidence. And <laughs> um, and the reality is that the guy who's the alleged perpetrator uh, of the, the center of the cover-up had his trial in seven months. I mean, so it's absolutely unbelievable that the Penn State three, it's literally unbelievable that they have not even come close to having a trial yet. And the idea that Louis Free is claiming, well, that same judge ought to handle the civil case is, is hilarious and preposterous. Of course, judging by the pace of the criminal case, Kevin, I guess that would mean that the civil case would be t- taken care of sometime around 2025 uh, <laughs> with the way this judge well, works in the criminal case. First of all, there's there's it's, it's unprecedented that their three trials have not even come close to the light of day in court. When you're under any kind of an indictment in a criminal situation, you it's a it's a constitution. You have the right to a speedy trial. I, what what word do they not understand regarding this? Uh, speedy? Uh, hardly. So it tells us all that the case against all three is limp at best, it's almost emba- almost embarrassing. Uh, to, at worst, it is nothing, and they all know it, and that's why they're trying to make everybody forget about it. Now comes free, and he wants to, as you said, remind people about it, but he doesn't point out that the only reason Graham Spanier was ever indicted in the first place is because of Louis Free. Oh, so, yeah, absolutely. You know, without Louis Free, there is no indictment, and without Louis Free's embarrassment, there is no indictment. And what happens sometimes, John, is in several civil cases, let's say you and I 
have a, a case as plaintiffs separate but under the same topic against a defendant, they might consolidate those two cases in a civil court with the same judge because they're the same sure. claims being made in a civil case. This is a civil case and a criminal case. Totally different. Totally yeah, different totally standards different. of proof. Totally different standards that the jury must uh, interpret in terms of guilt. So there's nothing similar here. Absolutely. And let me just add one other point about Spanier's indictment and why it's important to the layperson who may not, you know, have followed this nearly as closely as we have over the last three years. The, the other reason why Spanier got indicted later is that Curley and Schultz never flipped on anybody. They didn't flip on each other, and they didn't flip on him. So they had no choice in their minds, based upon their incredibly nonsensical view and theory of the case, to, but to indict Spanier, because I think they were expecting, if there really had been, let's think about this logically, if there had been a real cover-up, right, which there wasn't, uh, but if there had been, Curley and Schultz would have either flipped on each other or on their boss. It's the only logical way this would occur. Well, when that hasn't happened. And the reason why that hasn't happened was there was no cover-up. And that's why there hasn't been a trial, because they have no evidence, and they get their heads handed to them if there ever was a trial. And I've been saying for years now what the prosecution in that case is hoping for is for their own case to get eviscerated through technicalities, which is quite likely, uh, and then be able to wash their hands up and say, oh, we tried our best, uh, these cases are tough to prove, and these scoundrels got away from us, but we did our best, and let's move on. Um, and that's, and then, of course, the media will buy that because they, they still are, are clinging to this five-year-old belief in Santa Claus that there was actually a cover-up in the Penn State case when there absolutely was not. I'm anxious to see what the ESPNs of the world do with regard to this ridiculous assertion by Free and his law firm. This is going to be fun to watch. Um, and, and by watch, I mean watch him twist in the wind. Because I believe now that everybody knows what a, what a fallacy that report was, what an embarrassment it was. And yet even though ESPN knows that they're not going to go on the warpath against him, but they're not going to defend him either, I don't believe. So this will well, be interesting to see. Well, it's my belief that in this short attention span world we now live in, you, you, at the very least, you need the aha moment that even the morons at ESPN can understand. And unfortunately, Louis Free dodged uh, your friend and, and now my acquaintance, Bob Costas, when he offered up a, a perfectly legitimate interview opportunity and, and I believe would have embarrassed himself against Bob Costas because Costas understands the case well enough to destroy Louis Free. But Free, probably the smartest thing he's done in this whole deal was to dodge Bob Costas because, uh, you know, he knew the media would not hold his feet to the fire for that. Uh, and, and then until Free is asked just basic questions, I mean, you know, you and I could do this in five minutes, just destroy him. He would have not any ability at all to answer the most basic fundamental questions about his theory of the case. But unless and until that happens, I don't share your optimism that the media is ever going to turn on Louis Free. Like no, no, I don't. I don't mean, John, I don't mean, don't, don't misunderstand me, I don't mean turn on him because I don't believe they'll do anything. I don't right. believe they'll make a big stand, you know, at Waterloo here to defend him. They certainly won't turn on him. No, that's never going to happen. But no. you're right. The Bob Costas opportunity was the one. And I sent Bob a copy of the Spaniard lawsuit, and he texted me and said, wow. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just tremendous. Anybody who's read it, of course, no one on ESPN has read it. Um, that's the amazing part. I mean, forget about whether you care about the Penn State case or not. That This, to me, shows how little chance the truth has in our culture today. You know, ESPN, no one really read the free report, but they at least pretended to read maybe the summary of it. I guarantee not one of those morons read the Spanier lawsuit, which completely eviscerates it. And by the way, I don't know if you agree or not, and I, know, and I, and I thank you for having uh, Attorney Tom Mesereau on earlier this week, and he certainly agrees with me on this. I, I think that if you look at Spanier's lawsuit, it not, not only exonerates uh, the Penn State Three and Joe Paterno and Penn State as an institution, it goes a long way in making you question whether or not the entire case was a total fraud, even against Jerry Sandusky, which I have come to believe is, in fact, the case. I have come a long way in that regard. Uh, originally, I, I was skeptical, uh, but having listened to you and, and watching what you've done, and in addition, talking to Tom Messero, uh, perhaps, look, I'm at this point, I am absolutely convinced that the Sandusky case was brought to trial quickly so that Penn State and all of the people out there could be done with it, wash their hands of it, find themselves a sacrificial lamb, whether true or not, and certainly gave the defense no time uh, in order to present its defense, in addition to not giving them a continuance when they had new information. So all of those things lead me to believe that Sandusky was railroaded. Now, if it turns out later on that he was guilty after having a complete and utterly fair trial where he has the time to prepare his case, that's one thing. But that hasn't happened. We haven't seen that. We see Sandusky go to trial in seven months. We see three other guys still not going to trial in three years. It's well, laughable. Pre- it's absolutely I- laughable in the judicial system. And I appreciate your open-mindedness on this topic, which I know is is about as toxic as it gets. Uh, and, and I really respect you for that. But for those who probably you know are listening, going, "Wait, wait a minute, this guy's crazy, right?" It's an incredibly complex case, which I, I have outlined at FramingPaterno.com. I am not alleging a conspiracy. In fact, if I had to put it in 15 seconds, Kevin, all people need to understand is that the unfair firing of Joe Paterno was a nuclear bomb on the Sandusky case and made it absolutely impossible for Jerry Sandusky to get a fair trial. And it turned what I believe in a rational world would have been highly suspect accusers into sanctified victims who Penn State had a huge incentive to protect and to pay off. And that's exactly what happened here. And that's that's how this occurred. This was not some sort of backroom conspiracy or, you know, crazy theory that somebody has. In fact, I strongly believe that my theory of the case is a hell of a lot more logical and sensical and consistent with the evidence than anybody else is on the other side of this case, and it's not even close. Well, when people, if they did get a chance to listen to Tom Messero the other day, and I thank you for setting that interview up, if they had a chance to listen to that, uh, there are so many things that he pointed out with regard to how that case was handled by the prosecution, uh, that it, it, any, any logical, open-minded person will start thinking, wait a minute, let, let's take a look at this, because these things don't happen in normal cir- circumstances. Uh, a, a heinous crime is alleged, and what most people are going to tell you, John, I assume, and what most people have told me is, well, wait a minute, Kevin, there were 40-something counts and he was found guilty on 40-something counts. Tom Messero pointed out one of the most important points in this entire case, that prosecutors, when they feel they have a weak case, yep. will will pile on 
with the counts and the charges in order to make everybody believe, well, you know what, maybe they're weak here, but you know what, he had to do something. Well, Kevin, I'm really glad you brought that up because one of the things the prosecution did that was brilliant at the time of Jerry's arrest, which then caused the firestorm causing Joe Paterno's firing, which then led to the free report and everything else, is that they did an incredible job with the smoke and mirrors, making it appear as if the allegations were far more numerous and far worse than they actually were. And, of course, the media being dumb and not actually reading and not thinking, bought hook, line, and sinker right into it. And um, if you look carefully at that original uh, indictment back in November of 2011, only two people, only two human beings, had said at that point that Jerry Sandusky had sexually abused them. One of them, Aaron Fisher, I have done extraordinary research into an investigation of, and I'm about to release several more interviews, Kevin. I have talked uh, on the record for an hour with the woman who organized the rally for Aaron Fisher when his book came out. She and her friends no longer believe Aaron Fisher's story. She told me things that will knock your socks off. Well, this is the guy, John, I don't mean to interrupt you, but this is the guy who took a picture uh, in a hotel room with his girlfriend and he on the bed with dollars spread, spread all over the $100 bed. $100 bills. Yeah, after they got their settlement. Yes, $100 bills. Um, I've spoken with Aaron Fisher's next-door neighbor who believe he witnessed the origins of the story coming to fruition. I interviewed his sister, who Aaron Fisher dated just after the story uh, began to evolve, and she, while she still likes him, she is positive that he's lying based upon things that he told her uh, during that time period. I spoke with the police officer who first interviewed Aaron Fisher, who, who, and Aaron Fisher never said anything about sexual abuse by Jerry Sandusky at that time. Uh, and this was after he had already spoken to his therapist about the, these alleged allegations. I believe the therapist had a huge role in all of this. And for those who think, well, my gosh, uh, you know, there's so many alleged allegations now. What does one person matter? Uh-uh. This was the first pebble that starts the avalanche. This is the guy who, this is who they used to convince Mike McQuarrie that he had seen something worse than he thought that he had for 10 years. This is the same person that they used to get the others, the second victim, to say that he had been sexually abused. By the way, he didn't say that until his lawyer and the investigators conspired to lie to the guy, victim number four, uh, and tell him that things that were not true in order to get him to claim that Jerry Sandusky had sexually abused him. How do we know this? There's an audio tape of it because they had mistakenly thought they had turned the audio recording off when they had actually turned it on. And, and I keep like, saying, I keep saying to people, John, if you if you don't have an open mind here, this could happen to you. This exactly. could happen to me. This could happen to any listener out there right now if we don't pay attention to righting yeah. these wrongs in the way. The state goes about their business in the way powerful people go about their business. They need to be held accountable. Their feet need to be held to the fire. And Tom Messero was so excellent in explaining that in Michael Jackson's case, the worst thing he ever did was to settle back in 1993 with someone who yeah. claimed sexual, not harassment, but pedophilia. And he said that set in motion a series of events 
that destroyed Michael Jackson's life. And Penn State is doing the same thing. It's very similar. And by the way, I'm someone who was positive that Jackson was guilty. I no longer know that. Mesero, I do, I've been spoken to Mesero extensively. Um, I can tell you that Tom believes that, that Michael Jackson is innocent. I will say that the evidence against Jackson was far greater than the evidence against Sandusky. Uh, not even close. I mean, Jerry Sandusky never made a, gave a kid a settlement of anything. I mean, in fact, you know, so much is hilarious to me that so much was made of Jerry's alleged gifts. So, for instance, Aaron Fisher, I have on tape that woman I referred to earlier uh, who organized the rally for Aaron Fisher, where Aaron Fisher's mom told her, quote, that the prosecutor fabricated gifts that Aaron got from Jerry, quote, to secure a conviction, unquote, and she'll take a lie detector test to say that that's a factual statement that was made to her. I mean, the idea that Jerry, you know, Jerry was basically giving used golf clubs, used computers that Penn State never wanted anymore, uh, you know, $20 on a birthday, clothes to, for church because Aaron Fisher didn't have any clothes to go to church with. That's the alleged cover-up. I mean, it's, just, it's preposterous. Uh, and and, and you, you mentioned a very good point. You went back to, you know, this could happen here, it can happen to everybody. Well, to me, there's two major points to this that go way beyond Penn State. One, how broken the media is in this country, and this case proves it. But number two, and, I, you know, I get, I get so criticized, as you know, Kevin, on this case. You know, people think, and Jim Clemente thinks I've been charmed by the nice guy offender Jerry Sandusky. Let me tell you something. I don't even like Jerry. Jerry and I correspond on a basically a weekly basis. He drives me crazy, all right? I, I, it frustrates me to no end the stupidity of some of the things that Jerry Sandusky and his family have done in this case against my own advice, all right? He has made my life miserable. I, I, yet I am positive he's innocent, and I'm also positive that what if this is allowed to stand as it, as it happened, which unfortunately likely it will, think, you know, think about this. The, the scenario against Jerry, Kevin, was he's the guy with the heart of gold, right? And, and he just really didn't understand what was happening, which is what I think really occurred here. Well, the Jim Clementes of the world have now told us that the guys with the heart of gold are the inherent suspects if anyone accuses them of anything, because now we're told it's the guy with the heart of gold we're supposed to look out for. Well, my point, Kevin, is what about the guy with the real heart of gold? What, what, do you really want to live in a world where people are now afraid to do anything for at-risk kids because they're going to be vulnerable to any kind of accusation? I mean, is that really the world we want to live in? Because that's the world we're now living in, folks. That Why? is the world we're living in. Yes, it was the world we're living in. And we're still living in that world, by the way, because this is the way they operate. It's a, it's a sad day. It doesn't matter where, where we are, what we do. Those kinds of lies are going to be told. Those kinds of things are going to happen. And John Ziegler's right to keep an open mind, and I kept an open mind as well. I, I still don't know where I stand because, as I said in that interview, I've never seen a fair trial for Sandusky. This was a rush. If ever there was a rush, it was done for political reasons. 
the fact that you have a career, in my opinion, corrupt former FBI director, Louis Free involved, tells me how corrupt it is. And so innocent people were trampled on in that Penn State case. Some of these so-called victims that came forward took advantage of Penn State's largesse and in their, their, their rush to get rid of everything Sandusky. So they paid everybody off, spent $60 million paying people like that kid who put pictures of himself with $100 bills all around him on a hotel bed after he got his settlement. Nobody had ever heard of him before. And yet there he was. It was the craziest case that I've ever been associated with in my life. Because it had child pedophilia involved, those gruesome charges, those gruesome allegations were always going to be working against Sandusky. And in my opinion, as I've said many times, rape and child pedophilia, those crimes deserve the death penalty. But you've got to have a fair trial. You've got to have all the evidence laid out. You've got to give the defense a chance to defend themselves fairly, squarely. I'm not saying that Sandusky's innocent. I've never come to that conclusion. There's plenty of evidence that he's not. But there's also behavior by prosecutors, people like Louis Free, that tell us, wait a minute, what's going on here? If you remember in the O.J. Simpson case, back in the day when I was doing the show then, I said on the air, he will not be convicted. And the, my program director at the radio station that day called me in and said, are you crazy? You're the only guy who's saying this. I said, well, I'll turn out to be the only guy that's right. I only bring that up because my point was the illegalities that the prosecutors were conducting were those were going to make certain that Simpson walked. In addition, they didn't know how to select a jury. They selected a mostly black jury, so that was going to help him walk. But they tainted evidence. They manufactured evidence. When you pull that kind of crap, I want the person to walk because the prosecutors need to learn a lesson. So do the cops. You don't do that. Yeah, you knew that O.J. Simpson was guilty. I believe he's guilty. But he still deserved a fair trial in our system. And he didn't get that. Well, he ended up getting a fair trial. But he wasn't getting a fair shake from the police and from the prosecutors who were manufacturing evidence, who were altering evidence. And that's what worked against him. That's what got him freed. In Sandusky's case, there were all kinds of things going on here with all kinds of people around this case that shouldn't have been around it. There were things that were happening prior to the case being tried that were adversely affecting his defense that shouldn't have been happening. We'll never know because he's not going to get another trial. And even if he's guilty on one count, it's, he's, an, he's a heinous monster. And I'll always believe that too. I would find a hard, you, you'd find me a hard person to convince that he's innocent. But I am a big aficionado of fair trials in this country. And when somebody doesn't get one, I don't like it. I don't like the result. I don't like anything about it. And that's what took place in his trial. There were things that happened that were never even part of a charge with Sandusky. In fact, the kid that Mike McQueary saw Sandusky with in the shower, that was never 
Sandusky was never charged with anything in that case. That particular incident, I should say. No charge. So it's a mysterious deal. Why did Mike McQuarrie change his story four times? He was the star witness. Changed his story four times. It was all bizarre. Next week you'll hear from Graham Spanier, who was the president of Penn State at that time. We did a lengthy interview with with Graham last September, just last September, because he had served a, a jail sentence. He had gotten out. He had written a book. Wait till you hear the things they did to him and the things they did to him while he was in prison, what they wouldn't allow him. What, what they did to Graham Spanier is criminal. It's criminal. And there are still people who think Joe Paterno is somehow engaged in some sort of cover-up based on the media, based on Louis Free, who was a, a bold-faced liar. Louis Free's corrupt to the day, to the, to the end of the day he's corrupt. So corrupt that while he insinuated in his report, remember, with no subpoena power, didn't interview Joe Paterno, didn't interview the people, Graham Spanier, didn't interview Tim Curley, the athletic director, didn't interview Gary Schultz, the head of security at Penn State, didn't interview any of them, but came to the conclusion that they all were guilty of something, a cover-up. The prosecutor of the Sandusky case went on 60 Minutes to say Joe Paterno, there was no evidence of Joe Paterno doing anything wrong. But nobody heard that. Louis Free had already done his damage. I'm telling you, once I hear somebody ascend to the level of FBI director, I immediately think they're corrupt. Why do I say that? Because all of them have been. It's it's one of the most astonishing records of consistency in the history of mankind that everybody who ascends to the chair of director of the FBI is corrupt. It's incredible. They're batting a thousand. The one spot in the government that shouldn't be corrupt, the top law enforcement officer in the country is the most corrupt and has been throughout history. And Louis Free was no different. Louis Free might have been one of the worst. It's hard to gauge that. That's quite a scale of corruption when you talk about people like James Comey, Christopher Ray, Robert Mueller, J. Edgar Hoover, and all the rest of them. But Louis Free was one of the worst. And, in fact, he is now part of the investigation into the Bidens. He's He is the uh, subject of... Gav Luff's testimony that a source called One Eye is covering things up. Now, who's One Eye? Well, One Eye is Louis Free. He has one eye. He lost an eye in a car accident. So these people have a long history of corruption, and they always will. I don't think they'll ever put a director of the FBI in who doesn't either become corrupt or isn't corrupt when he goes in. But that's the way that works. So we thank John Ziegler for the visit. We thank you for listening. We're going to run out early since it's a Friday today and get ourselves some rest. Get ourselves some rest. And I hope you enjoy your weekend and have a wonderful time over the weekend. But here in the Monster Energy, a drink, stl-cars.com, Kings Court. We're back fighting the good fight for you every single day at noon. Don't forget over the weekend, if you're out playing golf or whatever you're doing, get that Monster Energy drink with you. Put it in your golf bag right now. You can always take a cup and put ice in it later, but put it in your golf bag so you don't forget it. 
Because sometime during that round, you're going to wear down. And that punch of energy that allows you to focus and gives you that boost is going to be that can of Monster Energy drink that you have with you in your golf bag. That's why the world's greatest skiers and skaters and boarders and bikers and rockers and racers and gamers want their Monster Energy drink. Have a great weekend, everybody. Love you, Mom. Love you, Dad. Love you, Maureen. So long, everyone.